Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. My guests today are Ashok Vaswani, who runs Barclays in the UK, and Charlotte Blackmore, who is with Fujitsu, and on their graduate programme, she was one of their graduates of the year. I'm going to be asking Ashok about the one thing he wishes he'd known when he started his extraordinary career journey. And I'll be asking Charlotte about how she took a very different course in her career and ended up being very pleased that she did. I'll also be talking to the two of them about generations in the workplace and how they can work better together. And we'll be casting our mind forward to 2028 and whether my guests think the world will be a better or a worse place. Now, let's get to the conversation. So my first guest today is Ashok. Ashok, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Very nice to uh, welcome you. Uh, I ask all my guests on the lens, Ashok, what their first ever job was. So what was yours? My first ever job was uh, in my uncle's tailoring shop, where I would kind of, you know, open out uh, packs of suiting material and uh, show it to customers. And it was really irritating when they would open up 20 and then just choose one and I had to pack them all back yes, up. Yes, we've all done that. In I'm thinking more in the sales here, in, 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 the, in the department stores, but you were the poor one who had to put it all back together. Absolutely, every summer. Yeah, okay. And how old would you have been then? Uh, well, I guess 13, 12, 13. Okay, and at what point did the first inklings of what you wanted to do with your life, with your career, at what point did they start to take shape? Well, that's actually quite fascinating. I, I finished my chartered accountancy in India, uh, my chartered secretary, uh, and the one thing I realized is that I do not want to do audit and tax. Uh, and, you know, after two postgraduate degrees, didn't want to spend another two years doing an MBA. So I joined a management consulting firm to do an MBA on the job. Uh, and from there, you know, I got into city, loved everything to do with retail banking. Yeah, and this is Citigroup. This is Citigroup. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, been there ever since. And I am today more excited than I've ever, ever been about what I do. Yeah, and I've always noticed that about you. You do seem to hugely enjoy it. You lead Barclays in the UK, uh, founded in 1690, so a bank that's over 325. Older than the United States of America and older than the Bank of England. And the Bank of England, check that out. Uh, does it feel like a bank that's still changing? Oh, absolutely. Oli, the, con the constant transformation of businesses is essential. If you think about it, every company sits on the FTSE or the uh, or the Dow Jones for 30, 40 years. Unless you don't transform, you get, uh, you know, uh, edged out. And we are undergoing a massive transformation as we speak. Mm. And if you had to put your finger on the biggest area of the business or the main area that you see changing, if you were to zoom in on that, what would you, oh, what would it's you point clearly, to? It's clearly technology and digital and how that is completely changing the business model. Mm. And what's an example of that? What do you see so, day to day? For example, open banking. That's a big, 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 big change. And just tell us what that means. So it's about the portability of data uh, where a customer can choose to share his or her data with whoever he or she likes. Yeah, so huge changes taking place. If we um, zoom back out, I'd like to look back across your career, moments you're particularly proud of or a moment perhaps, and also something you'd change about your career, any, any, any wrong turns, any stuff you'd have focused on differently. Uh, so I, I guess I'm really proud about the teams. I've always... I've always kind of maintained relationships with uh, the people I've worked with across countries. Uh, I'd say, you know, just reduce the level of anguish, right? When you're young, you know, you get kind of worked up and stuff like that. And I think, you know, let things kind of flow. Uh, that, would be, that would be the one thing maybe I would change. So just to chill out a bit. 
Okay, but what comes to your mind as you're saying that? Because I suspect in your professional life there must have been several, but was there a particular moment? There's so many times when, you know, you're into business, into, you know, when you're sitting with uh, with groups and, you know, you're trying to get something done and you just can't get something done and it leads to a lot of frustration, right? And then you kind of look back and say, frankly, it doesn't really matter. Interesting. Okay, well, we might come back to that a bit later. Something I know that you've talked and done a lot um, about is around this idea of mindset and organisations changing their mindset. And I'd love to know what that word means to you. And also, is it possible to measure such a thing? And how does it actually work in practice? Right. So I think mindset is is a very, very important thing, right? Let me give you one example, because I think it kind of brings it out uh, to life, right? So you talk to a whole bunch of people in in the banking industry, and they'll all continuously kind of bitch and moan about the regulator. And I thought about it, and I said, if I go down that path, I could, but what's the point, right? I mean, the regulator is judge and jury. Change your mindset around it. So if you think about it and say, what is the regulator trying to get done? The regulator is saying, get really, really obsessed with the customer, put the customer in the center of everything that you're doing. Yes. I get out of bed every morning wanting to do the same thing. So where is the ray of light between me and the regulator? And in fact, if the regulator thinks of something which I've not thought about, shame on me. So how do I get ahead of it? It changes the, it completely changes the way you talk to your team, the way your team works, and it's just good for business. So so could I describe mindset as how we think about things. How Is we that think how you about things. Okay. And in terms of the practicalities of that, when you're running a team or a large organization, what do you do? Do you say, you need to think about things differently or do you give them the tools? And how, do you, how does it work in practice? It's just in conversations, right? Say, help me. I'm thinking about it this way. Help me. Why are you thinking about it differently? And these are constant conversations. And then, you know, once you get a bit of a success in a certain way, then success begets success, Right. So if, you, if it works well, then, you know, it just kind of adds up to it. And then you've got proof points to demonstrate it. Okay, so let's have a live example. What is something you wouldn't mind sharing with a listener to the lens that you're trying to change mindset on right now within the bank? Uh, just now, the mindset that we're trying to... We've gone through a huge uh, transformation about how we take a bank, which is 327 years old, lives in the analog world, and has to go digital, right? And we've said, look... This is coming, and it's important for you as an individual. Forget about you as a Barclays employee. For you as an individual to learn about this, right? How are you helping your kids? How are you helping your nephews and your nieces? How do you understand etiquette has not been written as far as social media is concerned? How do you think about that? It's important for you to learn for you. As a result, you'll also do it for Barclays, right? And that mindset shift has helped us move the uh, culture of the organization to be far, far, far more accepting of digital. Yeah. So, so a more challenging scenario, if you have individuals who say, look, this new mindset, this new way of working, of thinking, of doing things, really isn't for me. Um, what's your philosophy? Is it will come along and allow me to help you see it otherwise? Or is it, well, maybe this organization isn't for you anymore? Is it it must, must be challenging. Yeah. So, Oli, it is challenging. And, you know, moving culture and mindset is a very, very hard thing to do. But I think constant, constant communication and constant appealing to what really matters to a person makes a very different makes makes it very different. And then once people start seeing everybody else around them, right, adopting, giving their rationale, right, for everybody it you know it means slightly different things. And then if they come up and say, okay, this is why I'm doing this, or this is why it's important, then you can start getting the uh, getting the. 
the large parts of the organization to move. Is there some some people who select out of it? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. But the effort is to move the organization uh, as a whole. Yeah. Um, in terms of practicing what you preach, Barclays has been rightly praised for your Digital Eagles program. This is about digital skills for your team members and for your customers and for the wider community. What's a story from within the Digital Eagles program that makes you proud? Oh, I, I tell you, Ali, there's so many and it's so heartwarming. Uh, I, I, I tell you about two uh, old ladies in a small town, uh, you know, and they were confined to their home. And uh, because of the digital eagles, they were able to get onto the internet and actually see the places that they always wanted to see, right? Just on the internet or uh, literally listen to an Elvis Presley show. Yes. And, you know, for for some of us, you know, where, you know, we do it on an everyday kind of basis, what's the big deal? Yes. But for somebody whose life has opened up, right, the person could have a Skype conversation with a niece who lived in Dubai, right, and didn't have to wait for the monthly phone call. Yes. It's a life-changing moment. So it's very clear to me what you did for those two old ladies. My question is why? Why did you want to do that as so, a company? So, look, I, I, I have another very nice example, but let me answer your question first. Uh, look, I sincerely believe that uh, this digital revolution is frankly bigger than the industrial revolution or anything that's come before it. And every time there's been such a significant uh, kind of change and revolution, a whole bunch of people get left behind. It's really important that this time around we leave no one behind, right? No one behind. How do we really take this digital revolution and help everybody, right? Get the kids to learn coding, right? Is it really that important to learn a fourth traditional language or would you rather have your child learn coding? The biggest transition, you know, a person makes in life is from school place to workplace. How do you help through that? We've launched a life skills program. 5.4 million people, young adults, have gone through that program. The digital eagles for people like all of us, right? Technology for the sake of technology is exciting. Technology that empowers people is a completely different thing. How do you use technology to help people who've got vulnerabilities and disabilities? The fastest growing age community in the UK is the plus 68 segment. Automatically, automatically at 40, 45, you get glasses, right? At 50, you wonder why restaurants are so dark, right? At my age, you wonder why, you know, uh, toilets and hotels, you can hardly read shampoo and conditioner, right? <laughs> right? So everybody thinks of disabilities and vulnerabilities as extreme. I say it starts early. How do we leverage technology to help people, right? Yes. It's a big deal. Excellent. Well, huge amounts of food for thought there. Um, we're going to interview and meet Charlotte Blackmore very shortly. But if you had one piece of advice for the future leader, something particularly people in their 20s just entering the workforce organizations, what would that be? So I'd say two things. One is follow your passion. That's really, really important. So only if you follow your passion can you excel. And if you excel, that makes you happy, right? And two, try stuff. Try as many opportunities that come behind you. If nothing else, you'll learn. Yeah, and that relates to the first point because to a certain extent, if you don't know what your passion is, you might find it through trying stuff. Absolutely. It all comes back round. Okay, well, Ashok Vaswani, thank you very much. Thank you. My next guest today is Charlotte Blackmore. Charlotte is at Fujitsu, which is a global IT or ICT uh, company employing people all around the world, a Japanese company, I think the biggest employer in the region. Charlotte, welcome. 
Hello. Now, Charlotte, tell us a little bit. I've asked Ashok already. Your first ever job, what was that? Uh, my first ever job, I started at 17 when I finished college. I went to work in Costa Coffee as a barista for a year. So, uh, yeah, I was making coffees. And um, then I went off to university and carried it on through there. And then very shortly after that, in my final year, I moved as a working in a museum as a Viking. As a Viking, as you do. I mean, I could have guessed. <laughs> and that was at the Jorvik Viking Museum as a costumed Viking. And as you're going through that process at Costa, at the Jorvik Viking Centre, are you thinking to yourself, or when you ask yourself, Charlotte, what are you going to do? Did you have an answer at that point? Uh, not a clue, no. <laughs> okay, and how did you even begin to find out? Because uh, I hope you don't mind me saying it's a bit of a jump from a global leading IT company back from the Jorvik Viking Centre. So what happened? Uh, well, I was studying medieval literature at university yeah. um, and I kind of quickly got into my final year and decided, OK, this isn't what I want to continue studying, which had been my plan. Um, I thought, OK, I, I'm a bit of a tech geek. I want to work in tech. Uh, and when I started looking at graduate schemes, I found that I was ineligible for a lot of them because I hadn't studied either business management or computer science. And a lot of them specified that you had to have one of those degrees. And after looking through so many applications, I finally reached the point of going, nope, I'm going to apply for them all anyway. So I just picked up 20 companies that I wanted to work for and Fujitsu was my top one. And it was the top one. It really was the top one. Yeah. Why was it the top one then? Um, well, I was doing my research going into the different websites and I found Fujitsu's service and technology vision. Um, and I'll be honest, I didn't intend to, but I did read it cover to cover because yeah. hu uh, Fujitsu has this concept of human-centric innovation. Uh, it's similar to what Ashwick was saying about kind of empowering people through technology. And I remember reading it, it really resonated with me. And I thought, yeah, if we're going to get technology accepted in the public to the point where we can start using it to generate things like social good this is how to do it is to put people at the center of innovation yeah and i've read that line um that fujitsu use a lot which is this idea of working with people and organizations to shape the future of society mm. that sounds like a pretty big challenge to take on i mean what, what does that what does that mean in practice how do you see it um, well, one of the things that kind of Ashok mentioned is um, kind of we've got this idea of the ageing population and in the future we're going to have a massive shift between the number of working age people and the number of elderly people. So we can start thinking using things like AI, which currently the public is very nervous about because we have this idea that it's some kind of rival to human intelligence, whereas actually we can start using it to help elderly people and help them stay independent for longer by kind of having sensors in the homes and these sensors learn the elderly person's routine and then they can send a notification to someone and say, oh, actually, they've not been in the living room today. That's very unusual. Yes. If we zoom into your role exactly, Charlotte, what do, what do you do all day? What does it involve at the moment? Uh, so I'm an Oracle CRM consultant. So Oracle software deals with kind of back office solutions, helps automate back office processes like HR finance. So, for example, um, Fujitsu put in a system for Bolton Council. So if a member of the public rings up and says there's a pothole in my road, please come and fix it. Uh, the call centre agent would log that in the Oracle software and that would go away in the back end and kind of generate a cost estimate and find... Um, available field service mm -hmm. time, that kind of thing. So I work with those kind of softwares, consulting with public and private sector companies uh, and then installing the software as well. It's kind of a semi-technical role. So that is a very, very specific, I think that's a cracking example. Um, on the other side of it, so many things you could do within Fujitsu. So how do you actually get your head around the scope of that and does anyone help you navigate that? Uh, Fujitsu is a very open company in terms of being able to move um, and it's very much self-driven. There's not somebody kind of saying, OK, well, if you're not happy in your role, you can do this and this and this. It's your 
kind of it's on you to go and learn the skills that you need to be able to progress. And if you want, say, kind of a look at somebody in HR and go, actually, I really want to be in HR. Fujitsu is very happy for you to move, but you need to just kind of commit yourself to the learning and find out what you need to do uh, to move yourself in that direction. Yeah, so it's quite self-driven yeah. in that sense. And for anyone listening that's going through a grad programme, thinking of it, anything you wish you'd known about that whole process, how you could have got more from it, how you could have done anything differently, a lesson? I think don't worry so much. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I went in, like, I was incredibly introverted when I started at Fujitsu uh, and kind of speaking to new people is still a, a kind of huge challenge for me. Mm. Um, but I think when I went in, like Ash was saying, I was really worried about, and oh, am I going to do the right thing? Uh, I've got all these people, like, am I going to make the right impression? And really, the, there shouldn't have been that pressure. Right. I shouldn't have put that pressure on myself. So just kind of relax and enjoy it. Good. Okay. Well, I want to bring Ashok in because Ashok, I wonder in a second if you've got a couple of questions for Charlotte. But for you both, I'm just springing this on you. But at Barclays and at Fujitsu, how open do you think the lines of communication are between the most senior and the most junior people in the company? Charlotte. <laughs> Ashok has turned to Charlotte, but because he's a gentleman. <laughs> um, I think there's definitely a voice for junior people in Fujitsu um, as especially people on the graduate scheme, the apprenticeship schemes uh, and even the industrial placements, we do have contact with senior figures within the company. Uh, we take p part in some challenges like the responsible business project within the graduate scheme. Uh, so they split us up and give us a brief and kind of we go and complete a project and then that's judged by senior figures within the company. So we do have that method of communication. And Ashok at Barclays, someone has an idea, a view uh, for you, wanted yeah. to make it for your attention. How does that work in practice? So obviously my answer will be a little biased, uh, but I think we try and provide as much opportunity as possible for uh, anyone uh, anyone new, anyone uh, young in the organization to actually uh, participate in virtually every aspect of the business. Uh, I'm a big one for having graduates work on developing the strategy for the business. I'm a big one for graduates for meeting them. Uh, I try and respond to every single email I get, uh, and I encourage that as a kind of culture. Have you noticed a downside to that yet? Not really. I think I'm actually very enjoying it very much. Mm. What about space to think? People have different environments in which they kind of best think. For me personally, when I'm down into the detail, that's when my best ideas emerge. And uh, a question perhaps, Ashok, for Charlotte. I've just had a glimpse of uh, what occupies her. Charlotte, you're an amazingly... Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're doing really, really well. You're an amazing young lady. What advice would you give to others who are, you know, maybe just three or four years behind you in uh, university? How should What should they be doing? I think the main thing that I'd say is recognise the skills that you have and the skills that, for, uh, that your university course are giving you that aren't necessarily the ones that you need for um, a job. I'm, I'm quite against this idea that certain jobs require certain degrees. Some do, yeah, you, if you want to be a chemistry researcher, you need to be able to work with chemicals. Um, but for things like a project management course, I think you can do that whatever degree you've done. And university gives you a lot of other skills that you perhaps don't realise. Um, and it's to bring those out into interview and go, actually, yeah, if I want to work in tech, 
I'm going to go and work in tech. And if I can't get the role that I want, then I'll start in another role and I'll jump and I'll do and I'll move sideways and move up. That's really admirable what you did. Uh, it's, it's, it is very brave to say, you know, I've studied this, but I'm going to do this and I'm determined to do this. And you've done it. And so more power to you. Yeah, agreed. Charlotte, a question for Ashok. <clears throat> um, so my question is about the workplace. Um, the workplace that I've entered, it's obviously completely different from the workplace that my parents entered. Um, a lot of companies, both manufacturing and service, are a lot more focused on technology. We're starting to move towards more globalisation. So what do you think the workplace will look like for the next generation? That's a great question. And uh, I think it's going to change very, very dramatically. I think currently uh, we have this kind of pattern that, you know, you study for the first 22, 23 years of your life. Hopefully that stays in good stead for you for f the next 50 years and then you kind of retire. And I think that's going to change completely to the point that you made. People are living longer. They're going to be working longer and it's going to be a continuous education. So for one, I think that people will have to keep going back to reskill, retool, uh, re-energize, uh, rejuvenate and then kind of come back. I also think this notion of, uh, you know, I think to the point that you made that what are the skills that really a person brings mm -hmm. and uh, why should those skills only be attributed to a given organization, right? And I think more and more you're going to see, you know, people kind of bring those skills, use it, you know, Monday afternoon in this company, Tuesday there, Wednesday there, and, uh, you know, uh, a lot more democratization, of the leveraging of skills. So I think we are in for very significant change. So, um, Ashok, what you've just said there sounds to me like freedom and flexibility for a lot of people to do a little something for Barclays here, perhaps a little something for Fujitsu over here. For another person, it might sound like uncertainty. You know, I need to know where I stand. I need to know how it's going to be. How do you as a huge employer tread a line between those two positions because some large companies are taking a lot of flack over this. Yeah. So, Ali, I'd, look, I don't think these things happen on a cliff edge, right? I think over a period of time it happens. Uh, I'm actually quite astounded that in the UK, how many people work as so-called contractors, right? They like the flexibility, uh, you know, they develop their skills, they get a wide network, and I think it also helps us with income taxes, but that's a different story. Uh, so, it's already starting to happen. It's already starting to happen where people are saying, I'm skilling up in this one particular area and I want to kind of go and get it and get, you know, broadened out. So I think over a period of time, there will always be some people who will say we want the stability of one kind of job, one kind of corporate job, and that's fine, right? But the number of people who will want that yes. will necessarily come down. Okay, so I put it to you then that a grad program of the future for Barclays or Fujitsu might involve you acquiring the talent of a young person for only a fraction of their time. Don't you want all of their time? I, I definitely do. I definitely do. The question is, do they want to give me all of their time? Or how do I make it so compelling for them that they give me all of the time? And there are two things there. One is allowing a person to get to, you know, hit his or her complete potential. And two, what I've noticed is all the grads nowadays and the millennials, they're really looking for how do we make significant impact. Charlotte, you talked about... Um, people in the workplace who entered at very different times. What do you think is the main difference between someone in the workplace in their 20s and someone in the workplace in their 50s? What do you think is the difference? Uh, I think the biggest difference that I've noticed, particularly in business, is uh, someone in their 20s is a lot more willing to take risks. So, for example, I took a 
massive risk jumping from medieval literature to work in technology. But I was kind of encouraged to do that by the fact that I don't have any dependents. I'm not worried about a pension. Uh, if I, I know if it goes wrong, I just start over again. And I've not lost that much. OK. Well, you talked very candidly about your previous timidity. There is a school of thought that says, don't cock up, don't rock the boat, don't make some mistakes. You seem to be... Um, uh, courageous about um, a different school of thought. Why, why do you think that is? Um, I think, for me, it's quite personal. Uh, I lost my mum when I was 17 to breast cancer. Um, and she was completely optimistic to the end. And she was always trying new things. Um, I mean, she drove her nurses mad because she uh, she took up riding again, horse riding. And this is when she had breast cancer in her bones. Uh, and they went, you do know what happens if you fall off that horse, don't you? She went, yeah, but I want to ride. So I think that was kind of a, a massive learning curve for me and kind of seeing my mum do those things and going, actually, yeah, there isn't anything to be afraid of. Yeah. Because if she can do that, I can do anything. And so on that, and that is an incredibly powerful story, how much of what you've been saying about risk is a Charlotte Blackmore thing and how much do you see it in your peers and in your in your generation? I do, I know, I do see it in my peers and my generation. I think that was my own kind of story of me overcoming my yes. own timidity. I, like, I was very, very shy, very introverted and it, yeah, it wasn't very good. Um, but no, I think I do see it in my peers as more of an inkling to uh, take risks and try new things. And I think that's really important. I think that's why it's important that young people are heard at the top level of business as well. Um, because I think that willingness to take risk can only help business. Yeah. Ashok, where are you on this difference between generations? So I think, look, we live in a completely different time, right? Uh, from both ends, the employer and, and the employee end. When I was when I first went to uh, work, God knows how many moons ago, it was more like a, a, the contract was the company would take care of you, you took care of the company, uh, lifetime employment was, was the norm, uh, that was, you know, how you were rewarded. Loyalty was important. Growth within the company was important. If your CV showed that you moved every three or four years, that was, my God, this guy is, you know, skipping. Today, nobody looks at that. Today, everybody says, wow, you know, look at the amount of experiences this person has had, mm. right? Uh, so I think society has changed. Expectations have changed. And uh, corporates have changed. Let's have some more distinctions, though, because I wanted to pick up, you said about propensity to take risks. Um, we've talked about this difference between, you know, jobs for life versus five years. By the way, Ashok, how realistic is it that one of your graduates would say, Ashok, I'd like to talk to you about my career at Barclays, which I see lasting for about three to four years? You know, it's not, uh, it's not uh, unique, right? Uh, I don't think the graduate would frame it that way. But what the graduate would turn around and say is that, look, this is what I'm really trying to get done, right? And how should I, you know, what are the experiences I need to try and get that done? Right. And we can't think about in this day and age, you can't think about somebody who leaves you as uh, somebody who's being disloyal or something like that. You've got to think about that person as an ambassador for your company yes. going forward. OK, I put it to you that the generations that we're talking <clears throat> about here, and of course we are generalizing, um, uh, the younger generation care more that their organizations are doing a social good making a difference in the world. Ashok, have I just slighted, you know, millions of older people? Or is there any truth in that observation? A couple of points, right? The first thing is, I think today's generation has entered the workforce 
uh, in a much more comfortable uh, kind of environment setting than, let's say, the previous generation. So the previous generation, the kind of needs that they had to kind of resolve, right, were far more basic than the kind of needs today's generation has to kind of resolve. Point uh, number one. Well, hang on a sec. So, so, so just so I don't misunderstand you, you're saying that the people coming into the workforce today are in a more comfortable... Generally speaking, are in a better position, right? They're more educated. They've got more support. Well, more of them might have been to university, but more have been to university. we're going through Brexit. We've been through a global financial crisis. Right. 20 years ago, was that really so less comfortable? Every single... Uh, so you think about it 20, 25 years ago, and you think about all the stories of people who had to kind of come up in a very different way. How many people went to university? Clearly far fewer. Uh, how many people had uh, home ownership? How many people, you know, so it's kind of changed, right? So I think that's that's kind of point number okay. one. I think point number two is I have come, and I sincerely believe this, every single company, every single company must meet a societal need. Because at the end of the day, if you don't meet a societal need and you don't continuously stay consistent with what society is, you will perish. And what is society? Society is nothing different from customers plus prospects. So it makes business sense to solve a societal problem. And on that, how do you frame the societal need that Barclays meets? Oh, so it's just think about this, right? Think about yesterday. From the moment you w woke up, right, you, 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 you ate breakfast, you took a car to the office, you took a cab, bus, whatever, you had lunch, and, uh, maybe you had dinner, maybe, you know, you bought a gift for, 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 for a loved one. Money gets involved in every aspect of your life, whether you're Charlotte's age, whether it's your your age, Ollie, or my age, right? Money is such a fundamental part of everything that we do. And so we think about our whole uh, strategy as hashtag truly connected finance, where finance is connected with every aspect of what you do. Yes. And our societal purpose is really hashtag let's go forward which is how do you, you know, each one of us, each one of us has our own hopes and aspirations, right? My aspiration may be just that my daughter gets to a good university. Charlotte may aspire to become the CEO of Fujitsu or, you know, this new gaming company, right? Ali may want to be the biggest, you know, rock star on radio. <laughs> whatever you want to do, right? Whatever you want to do, uh, it involves preparation yeah. and it involves money. Okay, so we're... Rushing through, and I want your take on this generational distinction. Shall I have to put it to you, Ashok, given what you mentioned about the nine individuals and the multi-billion dollar valuation? Somebody will say, well, Ashok, does that mean that my money in the future will be looked after by nine guys in a garage and my digital money, which is somewhere in the cloud, and we just won't need banks in the way that we have always seen them, which could spell, uh, I don't need to point out, bad news uh, for Barclays. How do you square that circle? How do you get your head around that? So, uh, so again, a couple of points. Number one, there's, there's a democratization of finance, the ability for young folks like Charlotte, you know, three or four of her friends can get together and she can be the CEO of the next unicorn, which is fantastic, right? I'd love to invest in your company uh, and, and make that kind of money. Look, banks play a fundamental role in uh, basically disintermediating, right? People who want to save versus people who want to borrow to invest and stuff like that. Now, whether that is in US dollars, Great British pounds, cryptocurrency, gold, you always need somebody 
to kind of do that kind of role, right? Now, how that role gets done, the job, the job will remain the same. How that job gets done over a period of time will keep changing. Um, I've got a final question for you, and I'm afraid it is another big, it is, it is another big question. There are people. I'm going to spin us forward uh, ten years, so to 2028. Do you think the world is going to be in a better or worse place in ten years? Um, I'm very much an optimist, so I'm going to say better. <laughs> I think despite um, kind of current news events and the way that they're portrayed, I think overall we're becoming a much more tolerant society. I think we're moving towards a kind of globalised society. We're much more interconnected, not only through things like social media, but um, our companies are becoming more in- interconnected. Ashok, 2028. You know, I think she stole the words right out of my mouth, right? I, I, I'm an optimist as well. And, uh, you know, I think the kind of things, I tell you, Ollie, one of my biggest fears is that I won't be able to participate in all the excitement that there is out there, right? Uh, because there's so much stuff happening and the speed at which things are happening and uh, the progress that we're kind of making is incredible. But, you know, you think about it, right? I, I used to run Africa. You go down Africa, look at the way they're connecting and suddenly you're moving so many people to a completely different level. So on the optimist's view, how does digital play into that? What examples inspire you of how digital has a role to play in making the world a better place. And I'd love you to be, and again, of course I put you on the spot, but I'd love you to be give us a specific example, a way you see digital Just Just changing. take a simple example of connectivity, right? Just think about this. Let's get even more specific. Think about LinkedIn as a platform. Mm. I don't know how many people there are on LinkedIn, 500, 600 million people, right? And they are, they're now globally mobile, ready to take jobs anywhere in the world, Right? When I was growing up, no chance, right? Absolutely no chance. I didn't even know, you know, what there was out there in the world. And today, suddenly, there's a platform that allows me to link with God knows how many people. And to allow them to link with you? Exactly correct. Charlotte, an example. Um, I think one of the exciting things for me is things like uh, big data and this idea of connected things, the Internet of Things, um, and how that can be used to help combat things like world hunger. Good. Well, we've reached uh, the um, uh, the end of our time together, but uh, it's been a huge pleasure spending time with you. So to both of my guests, to Charlotte Blackmore and Ashok Baswani, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. That was The Lens, hosted by me, Molly Barrett. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and subscribe in iTunes and you'll get the latest episodes as soon as they drop. The Lens is a business in the community programme supported by Fujitsu. Today's show is produced and directed by Chris Cartwright with production management by Hannah O'Rourke. Music and editing by Adam Smythe. Our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye.